saying to church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us. Maybe you're at Pickering today or Port Perry or Bowmanville or at Ajax or maybe online somewhere in Ontario or Canada or the world. No matter who you are, where you're coming from, uh, good morning to you and welcome. This summer, I had the amazing privilege of spending some time in England um, preaching and hanging out with leaders. I was with leaders from HDB and Alpha Global and 24-7 Prayer and Greater European Mission and lots of amazing God-ordained moments. But the second half, I actually was in the south of England, the southwest of England, in, uh, in Cornish land, near the Cornish coast, uh, actually at the Cornish coast. And it was, it was gorgeous. It was beautiful. It's like right out of the movie. That, actually, that's why so many movies are filmed there. Two friends of mine said, you know, John, we want to take you to a church. It was Sunday morning. They don't have services till three. And actually, we want to go and have a small service together. And actually, we're going to pull out our phone. We have some leaders around the world. And we're going to sort of do a service together. And so we got in this car and we started going. And it was just like in the movies. We were driving down these unbelievably sort of thin little roads. And and we were surrounded by massive, uh, massive hedges on each side. And then we arrived right at the ocean. And, and got out and it was windy and it was blustery and I was like where's this church and they're like follow me and so we walked through one of these hedges it was just like a movie and we're walking in this forest through these hedges and then suddenly we emerge in the middle of a golf course and I'm like what in the world is going on so here we are in this golf course right at the ocean and all through this golf course and along the ocean are massive, massive sand dunes. Now, some of you are from Toronto. You've been down to Prince Edward County and you would know sort of the sandbanks. So imagine those sand dunes, but five, six times larger. So you got sand dunes everywhere, this beautiful golf course. We're in the middle of, middle of this stunning scenery and we turn this corner in the middle of the golf course and there is this ancient little stone church. It was called St. Edadox. Now, I didn't know about this. And they said, you know, this is a really special place. I'm like, why is it special? He says, number one, Christians have been meeting on this spot in this church for a thousand years. I was like, wow. Praying, preaching, taking communion, uh, encouraging each other right on this spot. He said, but what's really wild is that this church got buried for a long time. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, actually, from the 1500s to the 1800s, it was hardly used. And because of the sand dunes, this is pre-golf course, obviously, basically the wind was so strong, it blew the sand over this church more and more. And so it got named the Sinking Netty Church. And all you could see is the top of actually the, the stone steeple. Now, they were determined to keep this a functioning church. So once a year, this is crazy, for 300 years, they would actually dig a little hole, find the roof, put a hole in the roof or rediscover the hole, and a priest or pastor would go down and run a mini service in there so it can, can, could continue to be what they call a consecrated church, a usable church. And then, then in the 1800s, they dug the whole thing out. And not only did they dig the whole thing out, it started being used again. They built a beautiful golf course around it. And every Sunday, I think at 3.30, there's still a service in there. Now, we arrived arrived at this beautiful, stunning church at 9.30 in the morning and had this virtual, physical service together uh, in this place of worship. And I thought, oh, see, this, this is such a good image 
for us to begin this new series and this new ministry year together with. Because this place was a place where Jesus had been worshipped and encountered. This was a holy place. A thousand years worth of Christians here. Then it got lost and buried and had to be re-dug out and discovered or rediscovered. And then it was used again. That is what is happening in this moment. This whole series, what we're about to do is the digging out of something beautiful, old, needed, powerful, encounter-oriented that is going to bring life. So welcome. Not only to this new series, welcome to another ministry year and a new ministry experience here at Sanctus Church. Now, as many of you know, some of you don't, always the year previous, we spend some serious time praying and asking Jesus if he wants to say something very specific to us as a local church in the season. Is there a theme or an image or a word or a direction? And as we prayed and prayed last year, one word kept coming up again And again and again. Couldn't avoid it. And it was the word or the theme or the idea of resurrection. And man, after the last two and a half years, what a hopeful, needed, wonderful, life-changing, inspiring promise. Now, as we took time, it would seem that the theme resurrection will be worked out in a few ways. Number one, this year is going to be the full resurrection from death to life in many ways, but really into what Sanctus Church now is becoming. This new house. We've started using that language since 2020. I think also there's going to be a renewal or resurrection of the church in the GTA. And that was really hopeful for us to hear because it's been a really tough run, not just for us, but for everyone. And there seems to be a promise there. But one of the most significant things that was impressed on us was there needed to be resurrection of a Christian worldview. There also was the call to resurrect ancient practices like Advent and Lent, and we'll talk about that later this year, but, but that middle one. And as we prayed and inquired of the Lord, one major book in the Bible kept coming up again and again as we prayed about that resurrection of Christian worldview, and it was the book of Romans. Now, that totally makes sense because this letter in the New Testament is probably the best one to resurrect, to bring back the essence, the beauty, the power, the hope, the ongoing day in and day out, life change, promise, encounter. Now, the book of Romans not only outlines that Christianity is true, but it also outlines why Christianity is beautiful and good. It wounds to heal, it humbles to help. So I don't welcome you to our main series this year. And this is going to be experienced over the whole year, probably in three many parts. Now, as we walk together through most, not all of Romans, but most of Romans, it's not just to learn what is Christian belief, but it's going to become a place, just like that church, as we dig out these ancient truths, we're going to encounter the living God again. He's going to challenge our thinking, our worldviews, our daily life. God is going to give us actually hope. Now, at its heart... The letter of Romans is a challenge both to followers of Jesus and skeptics and those seeking. Now, Romans, by the way, is a letter, and and time and time again, it gives that answer we're all primordially craving relationship with God and how to grow in it once it's given. And again, Romans doesn't just speak to a select few, the people who are in the inn. It speaks to long-term Christians and brand-new Christians and those who are about to cross the line of faith and those who are wondering about, the cross, uh, wondering about Jesus and the cross and the Christian faith and those who are completely skeptical. 
Now, before we dive into our conversation, we, meet, we need to get some context. We need to look around and see and understand the why and the what and the when and the where and, and the how. See, without this frame, this heaven-sent beautiful picture will not be interacted uh, with the way this grand artist wants us to. So let's just start simple. The letter of Romans is one of the most powerful and most influential books ever written in human history. You don't need to be a Christian to believe this. It just bears out in history. This letter has like the power of earthquake or tsunami in the religious world, the philosophic world, and even historically. And for those who dare read it, offense will come, but also profound life change and freedom. Here's a few examples. Augustine, himself North African, received Jesus as his Savior while reading Romans 13. He went on to become one of the church's most outstanding leaders, most outstanding theologians, and actually he's one of the fathers of Western culture. You can't interact with the West without talking about Augustine. And it all really started when he read this letter. A thousand years later, Martin Luther penned these words after spending so much time reading Romans. Night and day I pondered Romans until I grasped this truth. I felt myself reborn. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. Now, Luther was reading Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and he rediscovered, he dug out justification by faith and grace alone. Centuries later, actually May 24th, 1738 to be exact, a pastor, a pastor named John Wesley was studying the book of Romans. And suddenly he wrote in his journal, I felt my heart strangely warm. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for my salvation and assurance was given to me. He had really taken away my sins. And if you know John and Charles Wesley, they end up leading one of the largest Christian movements in history called the Methodists. And the world has never been the same. It all started with Romans. John Calvin, the great reformer from France, said, When you gain a knowledge of this letter, you have an entrance open to you and to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Modern way of saying this, when you get Romans, you get the whole Bible. The 16th century, there was a guy named William Tyndale who dared sort of wanting the Bible to be in the mother tongue of everyone, English for him. And he said about Romans, it is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. No person can read it too often, nor study it too well. For the more Romans is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it becomes. The more it's searched, more precious things are found. Even John Bunyan, who was rotting in jail for his faith in England, read Romans and ended up penning something many of you read, have read called Pilgrim's Progress. Now, I I know and I believe that Paul knew this was powerful, heaven-sent in Scripture, but Paul didn't fully know it was to come. I mean, how many of us here, how many of us listening or watching have met Jesus while hearing the words from Romans? Like, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, or the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How many of us were broken by God's love? How many of us became speechless? How many of us were convicted and undone when we heard about the judgment of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God and all we needed to do, all our responsibility was, is to confess that Jesus was Lord and believe in our hearts that God had raised him from the dead and we would be saved. Wow. Freedom from our history, freedom from our present and our future, freedom from all the crap we've done against ourselves and others and God and Satan's rule broken, broken over us and certain knowledge that death was not the end. I mean, how many of our holy histories have been shaped by words that have rippled down the centuries, but our journeys are still impacted today? For I'm convinced 
that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height or depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate me or us from the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah. But let's not forget what Romans is. Romans is not some major systematic theology. Romans is a letter filled with honest struggle and pastoral challenges. Now, don't forget that though Romans is timeless, it's actually written to a church. A real group of people that existed 2,000 years ago. Real people just like us trying to live a Christian life in a big, multicultural, urban city. A city that was full of wealth and poverty, slavery and freedom. Famous for food and culture and sexual diversity and art and politics and power and military might and global influence. The center of the world. Now this church... That is the church that was meeting in Rome, started in the book of Acts, Acts 2.10. Peter's preaching the very first Christian sermon right at Passover. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews are there. And he preaches and 3,000 people on the spot become followers of Jesus the Messiah. Many of them were from Rome. And they went back and formed the first church. Now years later, by the time Romans is written, large amount of Jews and now non-Jews have also become followers of Jesus. And so this letter is written to a mixed crowd, and because of the content of the letter, it would seem that more non-Jews had become followers of Jesus than Jews. So we've got to look at Romans like a mosaic or a kaleidoscope, dealing with all sorts of issues in different audiences, and with the understanding that he is writing this to remind them what binds them together is the good news, and Christian community is a good thing. There are other reasons, by the way, why Romans were written, probably four others. First, it was a visionary letter. See, Paul, his goal was to actually plant churches in Spain because there was no churches there yet, and for him that was the end of the world. Paul was trying to prepare the Roman community, which he would need to rely upon to get to Spain. And remember, most had never met him. And so this is a letter of introduction because he's setting up a sending base for Spain. Second, this letter needed to confirm what the gospel is and what truth is because there were so many false teachers even by this moment. Third, he's continually trying to deal with fractured relationships between Jews and non-Jews, which now make up the church. He needed to deal with these massive chasms, theologically, socially, ethnically, that were happening week in and week out. And fourthly, he wanted to outline the grand plan of salvation by God for the world. So that's the quickest summary of Romans you'll probably get. So if you've got a Bible, and can I just encourage you, can you start bringing your Bibles back? Whether you're sitting on the couch right now, you're on a plane, or you're in a site, could you bring either your paper Bible or actually pull out your phone and really follow along, engage in God's Word? Remember, the Scriptures are living and active. This is a guaranteed place of encounter. Now, Paul, interestingly, starts Romans talking about himself. And he could have done this really badly. I mean, he could have said, hey, I'm Paul. You know who I am, right? Profound theologian, master of the, and king of the Old Testament, frontline warrior for Jesus, apostle, church planter, and I'm smart, and I'm brilliant, and I've given up everything for Jesus. And do you know how much I've suffered for Jesus? And oh, by the way, I can make tents from scratch and sell them on the side. And who are all you people? But that's not how he starts. Here's how Romans 1 verse 1 begins. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and set apart, for the gospel of God. Okay, let's just start with his name, Paul. His own old name used to be Saul. Now, some of you know part of his story, some of you don't. And I rediscovered an old mini bio written by another that's going to help us. Paul's journey, this person writes, to this place and time, writing Romans, has been a winding one. 
He's born in the cosmopolitan city of Tarsus. But he matured in the shadow of the great temple in Jerusalem. With its enormous gleaming white walls, he learned at the feet of one of the most famous Jewish rabbis in his day, and still today, Gamaliel. Though a Roman citizen, he was first and foremost a son of the covenant, in other words, a Jew. He had heard of the great privileges and responsibilities God had given his people. He studied the law of Moses, devoted himself to fulfilling every letter of tradition. He immersed himself in the rituals of the Pharisee with a singular goal in mind. His life was to become like the temple itself, sacred, strong, undefiled, and a worthy vessel for the righteousness of God. But, as often happens in the lives of great men... Paul's zealous pursuit of righteousness takes an unexpected turn. Well on a road to Damascus, in order to silence and persecute Christians, Jesus Christ confronts him personally, rebukes him personally, changes him personally, and sets him on a whole new course. The righteousness, the goodness, the rightness that he coveted could not be found in the tradition of the Pharisees, but in the faith of the people he was trying to kill. They showed their former uh, persecutor supernatural grace. First, they embraced him. And don't forget who he is. This man, Saul, who became Paul, oversaw the killing of the very first Christian for their faith, Stephen. And then they show him the source of their goodness. They were just passing on the righteousness they had received by grace and faith in Jesus. Paul's encounter with the risen Jesus, well, it transformed him. His future not now lay in Jerusalem or the works of the law, but among non-Jews, which, by the way, is shocking, preaching grace and living by faith. Instead of stamping out Christianity, he becomes the tireless ambassador. Ready? He travels more than 20,000 miles between Jerusalem and Rome, proclaiming the gospel without cars, without planes, without trains. And then, near the end of his third missionary journey, after what all of us would consider a pretty full ministry life, he then says, oh, I'm not done. I'm just getting started. There's no churches in Spain. i got to go over there and begin that too. Now, what's the first thing that this epic leader, this man, this great intellectual giant, this person who's personally met Jesus, the one who used to be enemy now, for, what does he first say about himself? He says, I, verse 1, I'm a servant. Uh, In the Greek, it reads like this. I, Paul, a slave or bondservant. I oversee a house I do not own, and I'm never going to own it. I have no say about the house at all. Now, let's not rush too quickly. One reflected on this. Greeks and Romans despised, hated slavery above all else. They would have never objected to governmental service as long as it was voluntary, an expression of good virtue by a loyal citizen. But compulsory service meant loss of freedom and loss of dignity. Oh, Romans and Greeks loved having slaves, but they despised slavery for themselves. So this is not popular at all. And Paul is rooting his very identity in being a slave and not having a say which, of course, would turn off the original audience. But see, there's power here, there's joy here, and there's life here. Because what Paul understands and the Holy Spirit was inspiring is at this moment in Rome, there was one million people that lived in Rome at this moment, half of them were slaves. And Paul is saying, I am a slave with joy and freedom, even though I'm not free. There's something God is doing that's going to actually bring God-given identity and spread the gospel in a very unexpected place among the slave class. And then to others. But more for the Jewish audience, 
There's another key dimension here because this title in the Old Testament was given to Abraham, Moses, and David and had a religious connotation. So Paul says, I'm Paul, with all that background, and I'm a slave. Oh, and by the way, I was called. I didn't set this up for myself. I didn't save myself. See, God decided beforehand, before Paul was born, that Paul's life would be for him. God chose Paul to be saved and saved him to serve a world that's not even really looking for God. And by the way, this is the story of every single Christian, if you are one today. In life, think about it, you cannot raise yourself from the dead. If you're in the ground dead, you can't bring yourself back to life. And by the way, you also cannot conceive yourself. That is why the Christian message is so threatening and scandalous and dangerous to religion, spirituality, and humanism. Because God is the one who calls us to live, and God is the one who makes us exist. We don't call on him first. He calls on us. And because of his call, we then call on him. It takes another to conceive and another raise from the dead. Both are from the outside. Both declare that what we do isn't enough. Now, Paul's not done. Slave called and then apostle. Uh, Envoy. Sent one. Ambassador for Jesus. Let me read it again. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Okay, if you're going to take notes for Connect Group or thinking this through, I want you to highlight or underline that phrase, set apart. This is wild. And most of us don't even catch it. Remember, Paul was a world-class Jewish thinker and part of the Pharisee group. The Pharisees, ready? That name Pharisee means set apart ones. (laughs) So this is basically the same phrase used here. And this is so scandalous and so wild because Paul is saying, I used to be a Pharisee for the law and the ways of Moses. Now I'm a set apart one for Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law that I used to live my life for. And then he says, my my life is about one thing, the gospel of God. Now, I love the word gospel and it's churchy now and we've missed it. Gospel is a secular word, not a religious word, and it meant joyous news, good report, good story. In Greek, when the word gospel was used, it had two meanings. The first one was, if your country was at war, and our side, whatever that side is, won, a herald would run from the battlefield and give good news. Our side won. We've got victory. The other place where this was used is when a king would be able to declare to his people that an heir had been born. A king, a new king had been born. Now, why is this beautiful? Because that ties Christmas and Easter right in the middle of the secular word. Because the gospel means the king has been born, and the gospel means victory has been accomplished. And that's exactly what happens at Christmas and Easter. Now, Paul keeps going. I'm set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, catch this. Christianity is not a new religion. It's just the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. Paul shows the continuity of God's work. The whole Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, are all foreshadows, are all preparatory for the coming work of Jesus. This has been the focus of God ever since we walked out on him at Eden. The gospel was sung and spoken and written down the Old Testament. That is why Paul is about to quote the Old Testament 60 times in the book of Romans. Jesus' birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, all talked about in the Old Testament. Born of a virgin, Old Testament. From the house of David, Old Testament. Would be called Emmanuel, Old Testament. Be executed for the sins of the world outside of Jerusalem, Old Testament. That actually, even when he physically was executed, he would be pierced, but his bones would not be broken, Old Testament. He died by crucifixion, Old Testament. It's all there. That's why the angel, by the way, 
said to the shepherds at the first Christmas, I, I bring you good news of great joy for all people because a Savior has been born. See, <laughs> the heart of the gospel, as we dig that old thing out, is not self-help. And the gospel is not being good. And the gospel is not being religious. And the gospel is not being spiritual. And it's not even being Christian in name only. It's not a set of dead beliefs. It's not a new religious system. And it's not a philosophic system. Nor is it advice. Oh, can I just say this again? Christianity is not not advice. The gospel is Jesus. And the freedom he gives. And the peace he brings through his identity, his work, as we accept him. Now, knowing everything is about Jesus, Paul unpacks who Jesus is right here in verse three, regarding God's son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. Paul says, look, Jesus existed. He was real. He was really human. He didn't appear as a human. He was human. He was human just like us. Ah, but he's not just human like us. There's more. He's more than just a prophet, a great thinker, a miracle worker, an extraordinary order, a social revolutionary, a religious inspired. No, no, no. He is God in flesh. He's Emmanuel. That's why he says, and, and who, verse 4, through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, watch this. Highlight or underline the phrase spirit of holiness. Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that hovered over creation in Genesis 1-2. The same Holy Spirit that was there at the dedication of the tabernacle with Moses and the temple with Solomon. The same Holy Spirit that filled the mouth of the prophets. The same Holy Spirit that lightened and hovered on overshadowed Mary. The same Holy Spirit that actually was at Jesus' baptism to empower him now brings him back from the dead. And that word declared was declared with power, is where we get our English word horizon from. In other words, Jesus' resurrection from the dead violates or breaks the boundary between heaven and earth. See, Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and this proves Jesus was not crazy, insane, a liar, or the devil, but he was what he claimed. I love how Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. If corpses can't be raised, then Christ wasn't, because he indeed was really dead, And if Christ wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering around in the dark as lost as ever. And it's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and resurrection because they're already in their graves. If all we get of Jesus a little, if all we get out of Jesus is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, the whole Christian faith is in vain. Paul's a liar. Every pastor and Christian leader, including myself, is a liar or deceived. The hope of the new heavens and new earth, it's lost. Your personal faith is worth nothing. All our encounters with God, psychological, evil, invented. Knowing God out the window, we all still need salvation, if that's even possible. All All secure future hope is lost. All the actions we've done, all the worship we've done, all the suffering, all the self denial, all the giving we've done is useless because there is nothing coming. I love when one theologian said this, if Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ has not risen, then nothing else matters. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. But he did rise from the dead. And since Jesus rose from the dead, atheism is answered. 
And since Jesus rose from the dead, agnosticism is resolved. And since Jesus rose from the dead, every other religion on earth actually has to reevaluate. And since Jesus rose from the dead, death is answered. We know what lies beyond the grave because someone went there and came back. And since Jesus rose from the dead, the human family does not need to ask, who is God? What is he like? Is he involved? Since Jesus rose from the dead, you can meet God. Since Jesus rose from the dead, there's purpose in life more than money, sex, power, being more religious or spiritual. And since Jesus rose from the dead, the coffin or the cremation fire is not your end. The resurrection of Jesus is everything. I love how Tim Keller years later uh, from this, of course, said, religion says earn your life. Secular society says create your life. And Jesus says my life for your life. All of that hope is grounded in resurrection. Let me read this again. And who through the spirit of holiness, verse 4, was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. See that phrase, son of God and Lord? Those are (laughs) overt statements of divinity. To have the DNA of God means you are God because there's only one being with that DNA inside and outside of time. When early Jews heard other Jews calling Jesus not just Messiah, Christ, but Son of God, they got enraged because they knew this was a claim of divinity. Oh, and you see that? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, Okay, this is really important. The word Lord is kurios. And in the Old Testament, when it was written in Greek, that's the name for God used by Jews all over the Roman Empire. And now you've got Jewish people, including Paul, saying Jesus Christ is Lord. Wow. Verse 5. Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace, apostleship, to call people from among all the non-Jews to obedience that comes from faith. Because of God's work and for his glory, we've got salvation, we've got grace, we've got guidance, we've got wisdom, we've got illumination, we've got power to serve, and we're only presenting Jesus. Now, Near the end of this jam-packed intro, Paul then turns from his own story and even from heaven and says, hey, listen, if you're listening to this or reading this, this isn't just my story. I know some of you aren't Christians, but for you who are Christians, oh, this is you too. This is your story and your God-given identity. Verse 6, and you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You are called also, and you belong also. See, calling in in the book of Romans is not invitation. It's not some option. It's effectual. It's overwhelming. It's powerful. It's irresistible. But thank God that God called you, because if he had never called you, you would have never naturally come. And that calling produces this incredible thing called belonging. To be with, to be owned, to never be abandoned, never be lost, never be removed, never be alone. And then Paul says in verse 7, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, do you see it? Not going to be loved by God. Not might be loved by God. We are loved by God. Loved. Really loved. Cherished. Fought for. Chased after. He thinks about us. He thinks about you. He looks out for us. He loves us. He loves you. And we know that God loves us because he called us. 
He stepped into our lives like he did with Paul. He elected us. He loved us when we not, did not love him first. When, he, when we were not looking for him, he found us. He brought us to life even though we were spiritually dead. He adopted us. He predestined us. Oh, and do you notice it? What is all this calling and belonging equal? Oh, to be a saint. Okay, let's just slow down and do this together. This is really important. Would you say this out loud? I am... No, no. I'm recording this with no one here, and I still know you're not doing it. Get everyone together. Even if you're on a couch, you're going to do this. Say, I am a saint. So you're like, I can't say that. No, say it again. I am a saint. Every single Christian on earth is a saint. A saint is not someone like Mother Teresa who does inspiring, profound things their whole life. No. A saint is not someone who dies and miracles are done in their name. No. Saints are not epic, awesome Christians who basically are in first class and business class with the Trinity, and we're all sitting back in economy. Saint just means one who is made holy, set apart, and dedicated for holy use. Every Christian, brand new, two minutes old, right? Every Christian, decades. Every Christian that's struggling right now. Every Christian at this moment that's fully devoted and all in, and every Christian that's about to leave the faith and doesn't know, every single one of us positionally is a saint, holy before God, because when God looks at you, he looks at you through the presence and the work of Jesus and the filling of his spirit. And not only that, though, we are also reminded that being a saint not only implies that we're seen perfectly through the work of Jesus positionally. But we're still slaves, owned. We belong to, we're set apart for holy things. And then Paul ends by saying to them, us also, grace, which is undeserved mercy, and peace, a restored relationship between you and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, Christ is Messiah, anointed one, who is Lord himself. And remember, this is so important. say this every time Paul does this. Do you notice that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I am, the creator God, the only true living God, the only only being that has ever, ever existed outside of time and space, that has no beginning or end, do you notice that God and Jesus are on the same level? And by the way, that means Jesus has to be God because you can't even share that space unless you are. Here again, we begin to see why there is only one true living God but found in Trinity. Okay, what I love again is so many of you online and hanging out in one of our locations and sites, you are not sure if you're in. Some of you grew up Christian and you're like, I don't know if I believe this. Others of you are other, from other faiths. You're agnostic, you're atheistic. Some of you got dragged here by a friend or family member. You don't know what you believe. Others of you are spiritual or kind. But see, no matter who you are, here the basics of the whole Christian faith, have already been given to you. Who Jesus is and who he's not. What he's all about, what the good news is, and what he's done for you. The question you're facing in this moment, in this holy moment, in this digging out moment, and actually for this series, if you have the courage to stay, is will you allow God's transformation of the world, as one wrote, to begin in you? As Paul will explain, this is not an invitation to try harder, but a plea to submit to his grace before it's too 
late. Now for us, many, many of us who are followers of Jesus, this is just the the beginning. And remember, the Holy Spirit had prompted us to take time to do this because there was a needing to resurrect a robust Christian understanding and worldview that would affect our lives. So the simple prayer as we begin is, Lord, form in me, resurrect in me the true Christian faith. Who God is, what he's done, who we are, and what he's calling me to be, what he's, asking, what he's calling me to do, and actually also being open to the things he's telling me not to do or not to be. But as we begin this series, I just want to say this to you. If you're a Christian, within the sound of my voice, you've already heard the good news. Grace has already been given to you, and you still at this moment have peace with God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace. You have shalom. Your relationship is intact. You already belong. You at this moment are a saint. You literally are a saint. You are loved. Resurrection is guaranteed for you. This is how God looks at you. This is how God thinks about you. This is the forming of your identity. And once this takes hold deeper and deeper and deeper, then willing slavery becomes no problem. Then the idea of living a holy life is obvious. Then being radical for Christ is like, of course. Why? Because I have good news and I believe the good news and I really live out of grace and I actually have peace and I really root my identity in calling, not in my own work. And I really do belong and I actually am a saint and I will be loved, I am loved and I always will be loved and I know that death does not have power over me because the resurrection is true. This is how God looks at me. This is how God thinks about me. This is how God thinks about the church. This is how I live my life. So the simple prayer is, Father, Son, send the Spirit to open so many people's eyes and ears and hearts like you did with a guy named Saul who became Paul. Even now at this moment, do that thing. And for the rest of us, give us the courage, uh, the joy, and the willingness for truth to move from our heads to our hearts, to root our identity here. But the greater prayer is, O God, Over this next year, would you truly, truly, truly build out, dig out, resurrect a real robust Christian experience and worldview and life uh, in this church? This is what we ask in Jesus' name and said together, amen.